Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. It'll be in verses 15 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided in the back of the pew there. In front of you, you'll find this on either page 717 or 754, depending on which printing of that you have. Mark 11, 15 through 19. And uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem with the cross in view. The power of the cross that they just sang about was in view when he entered Jerusalem that day. And yet, there was darkness to encounter uh, in, the, in the days leading up to the cross. The title of my message this morning is, What God Thinks About Our Self-Serving Worship. And uh, the short answer is, he's not a fan. But it's, it's actually been a hard message to prepare, uh, partly because of the risk of sounding, as I deliver this, sounding self-righteous or judgmental. So my prayer as I've moved through this week has been that, that God would guard my heart against that and that he would enable me to stand here in the pulpit as, on one hand, an ambassador a minister of his to proclaim boldly and passionately his word that he has for his people. And yet, on the other hand, that I would remember that I am one of his people and that I needed to be seated in the congregation hearing the same word for myself. And so may he be faithful to do that this morning as we hear the word from Mark 11, 15 through 19. And just to give special reverent attentiveness to the, the word that God has to say to us, um, it's our custom to stand as the sermon text is read. And so I'll invite you if you're able uh, to do that. Mark 11 beginning in verse 15, hear the word of the Lord. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we, we do come with open ears and open hearts to you. God, our hearts are filled with praise when we are reminded that Jesus rose for the grave rose from the grave after dying on that cross for our sins that were laid upon him and we have every cause to rejoice in that and we do but we realize too lord that we are prone to write ourselves into the story as those singing Hosanna, Hosanna, 
instead of those at the money changing table in the temple. So Lord, would you help us see rightly the truth in this text today and see ourselves in it and to see you in it and respond accordingly. So Lord, we pray that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory because it is all yours. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, these events occurred the Monday prior to Jesus' crucifixion. He'd entered Jerusalem the previous day in this triumphant way that uh, Becca just read about earlier in verses 1 through 11. And of course, that's what we commemorate on this Palm Sunday when we uh, have this procession of uh, children and their handlers uh, with waving palm branches and, uh, and singing Hosanna. Late uh, afternoon that Sunday, Jesus went into the temple, briefly scoped out things before leaving the city again. It was getting late in the day. He withdrew out uh, outside the city of Jerusalem to Bethany where he spent the night. And then in verses 12 through 14, it tells us the next day coming back into the city, one of the things that happened is he passed by a fig tree that he saw from a distance. It looked like it was bearing fruit and he was hungry. So he went over to take some fruit and found it fruitless. And Jesus cursed the fig tree and said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And this wasn't because Jesus was cranky, okay, hangry or whatever. It wasn't like he just, you know, he had to sleep on the sofa bed last night and he didn't sleep well and he's now he's hungry and he's in a little bit of bad mood and he just curses the fig tree and nothing of the sort. I've heard people uh, who have a lower view of the scripture suggest that's what's going on is Jesus was having a bad day. That's not the case at all. Um, it's actually a prophetic uh, picture because the tree that has the appearance of fruitfulness but bears no fruit is like religious activity that has the external markings of godliness but actually bears no spiritual fruit. And the cleansing of the temple is actually sandwiched between two uh, references to this fig tree in what some New Testament scholars, scholars will call a Mark and sandwich. That is, Mark writes this way. It's one of the features of the way Mark writes, that he'll, he'll uh, actually have sort of two pieces of bread and meat in between. And the meat has something to do with the bread. In other words, what we read about in the cleansing of the temple is related to this sort of prophetic picture he gives us in the cursing of the fig tree that this fruitless worship, so-called, this fruitless religious activity of uh, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem is accursed to God. In fact, he's foretelling their destruction, which will come, uh, albeit decades later. But it's better for it to be dead than to be deceptive. And so his, his actions that we just read about here foreshadow, as I said, the destruction of the temple because their worship was fruitless. Everything about it was self-serving. 
As we look closer at this passage today, it's what we see. It's self-serving worship, and it is despised by God. It is despised by God, and, and we see here three reasons why God despises self-serving worship. One, that self-serving worship seeks to please people rather than God. Number two, self-serving worship grows in a prayerless environment. And number three, self-serving worship does not fully welcome the newcomer, is not hospitable to the newcomer. Well, let's look at those beginning with the fact that self-serving worship seeks to please people rather than God. Let's take a look at what's going on there in verses 15 and 16. Look there again. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And then he would not allow uh, any, anyone to carry anything through the temple. There's a lot going on here. Sacrifice required animals and wood and oil and so forth. And merchants sold those items in the temple court. It's a little bit like going to the movie theater and everything you want or need, you have to buy inside the movie theater, right? And you buy it for marked up prices. That's a little bit of what's going on here, but you could buy anything you needed for worship there. It was especially convenient for people who had to travel some distance. They didn't have to carry all of those things with them, particularly animals. So if they were making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they didn't have to bring a pigeon with them or something. They could actually buy it when they got there. And again, there's something convenient about that. We do that when we go camping. Uh, we don't buy pigeons, but we, we go, when we go camping up in a national park, we, we, uh, we buy firewood in the national park. We buy some other things that we, it's easier to, to buy there rather than, uh, than to pack with us. Actually, you can't take uh, firewood from outside the National Park into the National Park. You have to buy it there anyway, but that's uh, a footnote that you really didn't need to know about. But, <laughs> but uh, those who were traveling from far off could buy what they needed for worship there. It was convenient to them. And, and likewise, those who traveled from far off had foreign currency from wherever they lived, and they needed to exchange it so they could pay the temple tax and make their offerings in the local currency. There were money changers there uh, to do that for them, for a fee, of course. But again, it's, it's like it still is to this day. If you travel internationally, um, you're probably going to need to exchange your currency for whatever the local currency is, either before you go or while you're there. But it's a good arrangement for the sellers it's a good arrangement for the money changers and in most cases for the buyers. It was, it was good for the temple leaders as well because some of the proceeds of that commerce went into the temple treasury. Okay, so it's, it's good for everybody there. And meanwhile, there's this loosely related issue of people carrying stuff through the temple in verse 16 there. Mark is the only gospel writer who mentioned this, but there's this shortcut that people take through the temple when they're going from the city of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. Instead of having to walk around the temple, they, they would just cut through. And this became a normal practice, actually, that was uh, outlawed some decades later. But just it was just convenient to take a shortcut through the temple. It's like people to drive through our parking lot here to you know, go to the post office. It's just convenient. 
And Jesus said, no. <laughs> so all, all of this activity is going on and Jesus took charge of the temple entirely, which is actually a pretty striking thought in its own right because, you know, Jesus as a Nazarene carpenter didn't really have their credentials, so to speak. But the house of God had been set up to serve the convenience and pleasure of everyone except God. You get that? The house of God had been set up to serve the pleasure of everybody except for God himself. And Jesus wrecks the place, depicting what's coming on a grand scale. Judgment is coming to Israel and the epicenter of that judgment, ground zero of the judgment will be the house of God because judgment begins at the house of God. The people of God do not need to look outside in the world to find out what's wrong and to look for solutions there. Judgment doesn't begin out there. Judgment begins at the house of of God, and it would be so in Jerusalem in the temple. Self-seeking, self-serving worship seeks to please people rather than God, and many times it's successful in doing so. Many times, everybody can be happy except God with what's going on in the life of the people called by His name. I mean, most everybody seems satisfied with the arrangements right here that we read about, right? Jesus is the only one upset. It's convenient. It's profitable. And you might imagine somebody saying, Jesus, why are you making such a fuss? Attendance is up. Budget's up. Everybody looks happy to be here. I mean, it might not be the way you're used to or the way you want it, but it's working. It's working. Well, it's not working as far as Jesus is concerned, is it? Except working in absolutely the wrong direction because they're pleasing everybody except God. And I would suggest to you that people pleasing is one of the highest aims of churches in America. And this is the part where I say I caution myself because, because this could come out sounding self-righteous and it's not a bit. Again, we, are, we breathe the same cultural air as everybody else. We in our church as much as any other church, but American churches are, are by and large set up on the foundation of people pleasing. We live in a consumerist culture. We are all about you know, declaring what it is we want and expect and expecting somebody to meet that need. And so it goes in the way the whole approach to church is set up. We just assume we need to figure out what people want and then offer it to them. What kind of music is gonna please people? The answer, nothing. We hadn't figured it out yet. You know, what sort of messages do they want to hear? 
If you don't do more of this, less than that, people are going to leave. So you better do a little more of that and less of this. And again, this is really observation and reflection. We are, we're so steeped in this culture, we don't even realize how much that culture shapes our assumptions and expectations about church and worship, that it is self-serving. And we can please everybody here and God be outraged by what he sees, by making ourselves and our own interests the object of our worship. Number two, self-serving worship grows in a prayerless environment. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Mark is the one gospel writer who brings out this uh, of all the nations detail. I'll come back to that uh, momentarily. But there's this contrast in the other gospels of it's supposed to be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. And Jesus cites two Old Testament passages here, the first from Isaiah 56, 7, and the second from Jeremiah 7, 11. The house of prayer for all nations part comes from Isaiah, the den of robbers from Jeremiah. But in the Isaiah 56, 7 passage, he's actually talking about that foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, foreigners who keep his Sabbaths, who honor and obey him, who worship him, they will come. There, there's a day that will come when they will come to his house and their offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, says the Lord. For my people shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Okay, so he's, he's, he's predicting, Isaiah, this day that will come when access to God will be open to all the nations. It's assumed that his house will be a house of prayer, but it will also be a house of prayer for all the nations. In Jeremiah 7, he's saying to the people who call themselves the people of God, the people called by his name, that they, they ought not to think that just because they are Jews, that they just have God's favor regardless of what they do. And this is how they're living. That just their inheritance is that God will favor them and overlook anything that they do regardless of what they live that they and life in Jerusalem and the temple and so forth is just, it's like it has diplomatic immunity, you know. You can't bring any charges against us. And so Jeremiah says things like, if, uh, if you truly amend your ways, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you don't oppress the sojourner and fatherless or widow or shed innocent blood um, and so forth, then you'll be okay with me. He, 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 that's a paraphrase. But he says in verse nine, will you steal, commit murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. 
only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? That's the context of this reference. People who would say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. To call it the house of God over and over and over again, to call themselves the people of God over and over and over again, and yet go on living as if life is their own and they can do whatever they jolly well please. And God says, really? Do you think you're going to come in here living that way and just expect we're delivered because we're called by the name of God? Would you make my house a den of robbers? This is what Jesus is calling to mind when he references that here. And so it's his house is supposed to be a house of prayer. They've made it a den of robbers. That they are that they have contrived things such that they receive, they, they take from the activity of the temple for themselves literally in the way of profit, right? They are literally making money off of this enterprise, robbing the temple. And interestingly enough, this word, this Greek word translated as robbers has another meaning. It's used in, a, in an, an additional way in the New Testament that, that, that robbers sometimes refer to insurrectionists. Jewish nationalists who resist uh, Roman authority and who would make the temple at one time a, a nationalist stronghold. Actually, in, in years to come, Barabbas, you know, who was released in, instead of Jesus on that day when he was crucified, is referred to by John as a robber. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Now, whichever of these meanings Jesus has in mind, uh, the point is, it's supposed to be a house of prayer. They've made it something for their own benefit and values. And so Israel would be judged. The temple would be destroyed. Jesus himself would provide access to God for the nations. But this worship that serves self and neglects God emerges then in a prayerless environment. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a house of all kinds of everything else. It emerges in a prayerless environment. It's, it's one of the weeds that grows up in the spiritual garden that is not regularly watered by prayer. And this is just the way it, it goes. Prayer is sort of like a soaker hose, you know, that just seeps water into our spiritual lives. You don't really see it working. But if you turn it off for a while, you'll notice that it hasn't been working, right? You'll notice when the plants you intend to grow start withering and when the weeds start growing up. English Puritan minister Matthew Henry wrote a prayer book in the early 1700s and in the introduction, he pointed out that, that throughout history, he actually cites uh, the Greek philosopher Pythagoras, but he says this observation is made that whatever men made a God of, they prayed to. Not just Jews or Christians, what, whatever in nature, whatever men made a God of, they prayed to. And that leads Matthew Henry to this con conclusion. It is certain that those who live without prayer live without God in the world. 
prayerless Christians live as if there is no God in the world. They live in the world as if there's no God, even though they go on proclaiming that he is God. They live as if he's not. As if, the, as if life is within their grasp, it's in their command. Don't really need him, but also don't really need to know what he thinks about what their priorities ought to be and so forth. They just live as if there's no God in the world. A prayerless environment. And we can be assured that any local church that chooses to live without prayer and therefore to live without God in the world will find that God goes on living in the world without that church. And there are plenty of records of just such things. So self-serving worship seeks to please everybody except God. Self-serving worship arises, emerges in a prayerless environment. Number three, self-serving worship is not hospitable to newcomers. Mark draws out, as I said, this one detail from Isaiah that the other gospel writers do not, because not only is the temple to be a house of prayer, it's to be a house of prayer for all nations. And again, this is the point, really, that Isaiah makes there in in chapter 56, verses 6 and 7. It is about the day will come when the foreigner who has turned to God, who keeps his Sabbaths and keeps his commandments, when he comes and brings his offering, it will be accepted on my altar because my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. And, and again, this is, this is what Jesus is calling to mind here um, as all of this activity is taking place. Because the noise and the stench of animals, I mean, think about just that alone, like, like going to worship at the state fair. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like not conducive, is it? The noise and the stench of animals being sold, all the noise and the bustle of commercial exchanges was taking place in the court of the Gentiles the one place where Gentiles could come and worship has been made into a marketplace. And not just any marketplace, a a marketplace where animals are even being sold. So in other words, uh, there's there's a sense in which they've they've invited Gentiles into worship, right? They've made a place for Gentiles to worship, but not really. I mean, they've not really been hospitable at all. They've, they've not been considerate at all about what uh, the temple ought to be like for them where they would worship. Not accommodating in any respect. If their worship had been God-centered, and I would suggest to you, if it were a house of prayer and they were actually communicating with God, as his people, then the things God cared about, they would care about. In other words, the nations matter to God, and so they ought to matter to his people. But they didn't at all. They didn't at all for the Jews of this day. And very often it's a struggle for churches, too. I mean, that that to be hospitable to people 
who haven't grown up in the church, maybe who aren't believers at all, um, is something easier said than done for us because it involves maybe uh, giving up some preferences or making some concessions that either seem really important to us or even essential. But God-centered worship is going to be hospitable toward people that God cares about. Now, the one clarification I would offer, and it is a really important one, because, because there's tension between this and point number one. Because worship uh, should be hospitable to newcomers, but it is not for newcomers. Okay, now this is, a, this is a whole different argument. I could start here. I probably shouldn't have even said it out loud. But, uh, but let, me, let me explain since I did. Uh, the worship on, on the Lord's Day morning of the church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who have been bought by his blood who worship the God who has saved him. An assembly of believers offering worship that's for God. Okay? But it ought to be done in a way that is hospitable to those who aren't believers who come in and join them. And 1 Corinthians 14 kind of points to this in this whole passage about tongues and prophecy and so forth that just makes reference to be mindful of the outsider who's in your midst who just thinks this whole thing is kind of weird. So the, the whole worship is not redesigned or recreated in some way for the unbeliever or for the outsider. But it is done in such a way that it's hospitable to them. They matter to God, so they matter to us. Do you feel the tension in that? And so in all of this, the, these three kind of marks of self-serving worship, what should our response be? What's the sort of application to us? And we could, we could probably come up with a list of practical things we could do. I could have come up with five ways to make worship more God-centered and less self-serving, or three ways to make your worship service more hospitable to non-Christians. Um, I've actually thought a lot about this this week, sort of what am I preaching toward in the end? And the truth is to discern the heart of God in these and other matters, we need to become a people of prayer. You want a response to this sermon? It is get on your knees and pray. It's actually, you, here's your list of two things. Schedule time to pray. Number two, pray. That's, that's the response. But you know, mo most of the time, we would, we would rather have a long list of things to do than to pray for five minutes. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? Like there's something, because of the power of prayer, there's something about the flesh and the devil that keeps us from it. We'd rather spend eight hours working than 10 minutes praying. But we need to become a house of prayer. I saw a quote by John Piper not too long ago that said this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Yeah, we won't have to see a video of our whole life played before us. Just our Facebook feed 
And at least, at least that will make, will make a statement about this one fact. We had no lack of time on our hands. We had a lack of priority that matched God's priority. And I'll say, uh, this has to begin with leadership. And so I'm not, I'm not laying on, you know, it's one of those things uh, like, oh, oh, good. Yes. Yeah, so the, the pastor said, I, I, I'm not praying enough. Thank you for reminding me of that. Right. I mean, you know, like it, no, nobody ever has to tell us that. Right. So I'm not I'm really not laying that upon you. I'm just saying we don't, we don't need to try to aspire to do anything else. And we don't need, we, we ought not to really hope for a whole lot more fruitfulness if we won't do this one thing. And it needs to begin with our leadership, our pastor, and our elders. It needs, to, it needs to develop as a matter not only of personal prayer, but corporate prayer. We need to turn on the soaker hose. We need to turn it on. And I believe this, God will be faithful to, to cause new life to spring forth. When his people and the, and, the, and the life they have in Christ is just watered by a habit of prayer, a culture of prayer. And it'll give us a renewed passion for his glory and worship that flows out of that passion. We want to be a, a people who delight in his glory above all things, that our worship is for him that whatever about it might be uncomfortable or even painful, like kneeling for an extended period of time praying might be, that he's worthy of it. Our perspective on everything else about the life of the church will change when he makes that change in us. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, you, you are great indeed clothed in splendor and majesty as we considered earlier Lord and you are worthy of the highest praise Father forgive us for making so much about us including our worship Lord there is surely more here that you want to say to each of us individually that that would be applied and, and walked out individually, Lord, more than we could even identify right now. So we just pray that you would be faithful to do just that. Stir in us a passion for your glory. God, would you, would you press us into prayer? Lord, would you lay a burden upon us that... That, that just drives us to our knees because we just can't continue to stand. Lord, would you prove yourself to us faithful to your word as you can only be that if your people who are called by your name humble themselves and pray, and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, then you'll hear from heaven, 
forgive their sins and heal their land. And so, Lord, make us humble, praying people. And we trust you to do everything else that grows out of that. Have your way in our hearts now and in the days and weeks and months to come. Be glorified in us in Jesus' name. Amen.